Today's reading is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. All right, so let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We, we thank you for a place to gather, for people to gather with. We thank you for our family, our, uh, our family of, of, of believers and, and followers of you. Uh, we are all your adopted children, and, uh, and we are so happy in your, in your, in your family. Um, it's an honor to, uh, to stand before these people and to, and to, uh, to teach your words um, and teach the words of these ancient people who uh, knew you, walked with you, and had these incredible stories with you and interacted with you, and their stories were captured. Thank you for preserving these ancient writings for thousands of years so that we could come and we could sit here and read them and ponder what they mean for us. Um, it's a huge deal. It's a huge honor. Um, thank you for these times. Bless us. Allow me to speak clearly. Allow us to learn. Allow us to grow. And we pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So um, I'm going to start here this morning. The end of all things is at hand. So you picture the guy holding up the sign, the end is near, and big beard like me, like there. Um, and so there's a, a bit of a um, some eschatological conversation that needs to happen. For those of you who don't habla ecclesia, um, eschatology is study of things to come, uh, end times. It's, um, it's sitting around, reading the scriptures, trying to figure out exactly what, where this is going, where this is heading, um, what the work of Jesus and the message of Jesus, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus means for us and our future. Um, and so this conversation has been going on forever. Um, all through Christian history, there is, at different points in time, different majority views on what exactly will happen, and we're not going to solve any problems here today um, with, with all of this, this huge discussion about eschatology. Um, within Christianity today, there are, there's dozens of different ideas and views. There's um, Premillennialism, if you know any of these, awesome. If you don't, whatever. There's premillennialism, postmillennialism, there's amillennialism, uh, there's full and partial preterism, and then there's people who just say, I don't know. Um, and there's, if you ask five different people, you're going to get like six or seven different ideas on what they believe about the end times because there's just not this collective thing. I, I, um, there's lots of debate, there's lots of argument, and it gets awkward. Nicolas Cage gets involved, and. <laughs> It gets a little sci-fi looking, and it gets really weird. Um, and so we're, we're not going to... At some point, I'm, I want to teach through the book of Revelation just, just because it's an incredible piece of literature. And, uh, and, um, but this morning, I, all I can do for you today is get into the head of the, um, the time period here. Uh, what was going on here when this was being written? Why did they think the way that they did? Um, so in order to understand the first century Hebrew mindset of what was coming, of eschatology, um, I have more drawings. Okay, so one of them, here's the first one. It's super fancy, artistic. Um, the, the general view of, of the ancient um, Jewish people was that um, they were here in this time period that was moving forward, and it was called the present age. So when you read in scriptures and you read the present age, 
and you read things like the age to come, um, this is the kind of, you need to keep this in mind. This is the ancient Hebrew idea of eschatology. Okay, I want you to put aside what, what you know and what you think and, and the way you've been raised. I want you to get into the original writer's mind. This is how they viewed it. There was the present age, and then they believed that there was this dark valley that God's people would go through, which would lead them to something called the age to come. It's not as complicated as we make things today. Um, but they believed that this was basically what it was. And they believed that they were existing, um, the first century Jewish people, in the present age. And they believed that something would happen that would be dark and difficult and hard on God's people. And it would lead them out the other side to what's called the age to come. Now, um, the early Christians believed that um, what happened with Jesus on the cross constitutes the dark valley. What we would go through, what God's people would go through. Remember, Jesus is Jewish. Jesus is what's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, and so he represents God's people and what he went through. This is how the early Christians viewed this, that what Jesus went through was the dark valley that leads us out the other side to the age that is to come, the, the time when things would change, when God would interact differently with us, and this would lead to his kingdom. Now, um, and so this is what basically the Christians believed. And so the Christians... Um, Basically, they had this idea that, that their old life, they had an old life that was living for mortal things. They were living for, you know, money, sex, the pleasures of life, all the things that people today are teaching. And it would lead, uh, when they found Jesus, they likened themselves to Jesus through um, faith um, and baptism. They would follow Jesus through the dark valley, through baptism. And Peter said earlier, a few passages earlier, that they would... Um, sort of make this proclamation and this commitment and this following of Jesus. They would become followers of Jesus and proclaim um, that he is their savior. And it would be this act of faith whereby they would liken themselves through baptism then to Jesus and they would come out the other side and they would now live in eternal life. Today we tend to talk about eternal life as in, it's, it's, it's kind of reminds me of Groundhog Day. It's a 24-hour period over and over and over, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never ends. And that's kind of how we, we modern people tend to view um, eternal life. The ancient Christians viewed eternal life as starting the moment they likened themselves to Jesus and became his followers. Um, and so now they would say that you and I are living, if we're followers of Jesus, in eternal life, we are, which means basically we're living for things not of this world. We are living for eternal things and that this life will continue long after our bodies end um, and that, that whatever God is doing in the future, we will be a part of that. So eternal life has not, doesn't start later. It starts now. And so we are eternal people in the midst of mortal people and we are living for something completely different. We're on a different life source. We're, we are... Our mind is focused on things which will not fail, which will not disappear, which will be part of whatever God is building. Things like love, mercy, justice, peace. Things that we believe are the attributes of God and eternal. Are you with me? So, um, this is, so when you read things in the scriptures about the present age, about the age to come, this is kind of what we're seeing. They liken themselves to Christ through baptism. Now, um, scriptures talk about these things in, in all kinds of different ways. One of the ways that scriptures talk about 
um, the dark valley is, is, even Jesus used the word birth pains. Paul uses the idea of, of a woman in labor, how there's something good coming. It's a baby, and in order to get that baby, you have to go through a time of darkness. They always believed that, this was, uh, that pain was this symbolic thing, that um, if something good was to come, something difficult must happen first. And so they would actually embrace their times of suffering. They would embrace their times of of, um, of pain as, well, God is teaching me something. They didn't necessarily believe that God was, that the, they didn't believe the best times in their life were the times that were really, really good. They believed the best times in life were the times that were difficult because then God was pruning and teaching them and making them what they were supposed to be. And so the idea was that God had come, that he had done something, but that there was, his kingdom was still coming and so there would be more times of difficulty. Jesus himself calls it birth pains. Let's throw a verse up here. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And so Jesus his death marks this, this dark valley, but then there's still a lot more to come. Um, we know through looking at history that this is still true, that whenever something good is going to come, uh, it's always going to be difficult. The enemy is against things like justice. The enemy is against things like goodness and mercy and a holiness, um, which is why you have all these different periods in time where you know, we come to this conclusion that... that that God is teaching us that slavery is wrong and we're going to abolish it from the world and these wars break out and it gets difficult. And then we come to this conclusion that, that, G, that, that God really did create everyone equal and our brothers and sisters who are being oppressed, that that's not right. And so a time of civil rights happens and in that time things get very difficult. And so the Jewish people had an idea that was right, that whenever good things are coming, the enemy is strong and fights back. But through these difficult times, good things happen. Um, and so Jesus talks about this as uh, his, the coming of the kingdom, that when, it, when the gospel is moving forward, the kingdom is being proclaimed um, and, and things are being changed, that, that things will get very difficult. Um, and they, they, they actually, this is incredibly true of them. You know, Peter writes, the end is near. Um, the time that they were living in, anyone would be saying this. Uh, within 10 years of this book being written, um, 70 AD happened, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Jews were slaughtered, um, and Judaism never recovered from what happened here. Um, and it, it was forced to reform because they never again had their temple sacrifices. Um, throughout Rome, uh, at the same time period, as, as, this, book was, as this book was being written, um, the Romans were rounding up Christians and absolutely murdering them left and right. And so they had this sense in which God is doing something. God is moving his kingdom forward. And the end of what, whatever we're in is coming. And God is doing something different. Now, Paul, uh, it, it, was, it was a regular thing for the, for the apostles during this time period to believe that God was about to just come thundering in right now to change everything now um, and to intervene in this world now um, whenever they were writing these things because of the context in which they were writing. Um, this would be Corinth. Um, Paul writes, 10 years before this book was written, Peter, um, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and he told them basically the same thing. The end is coming. We have very little time left. And you read this in scriptures, and you're like, why would they think that? Well, the context of, of these books is incredible. Um, in 51 AD, about um, six or seven years before Corinthians was written, um, uh, Roman history tells us, that, tells us that there was this huge famine and that this famine was wiping out massive um, just 
swaths of people in Rome that they were dying. And Corinth had pretty much done pretty well during the famine. They hadn't had to deal with much, and they kind of took for granted that Rome is always going to be there. Rome is going to provide for us. Um, But suddenly, when Paul writes this letter, um, he writes this because suddenly um, the food supply has been cut off. And things are getting very difficult, and they're terrified for their lives. They think the world is coming to an end. And Paul, if you actually read, if you understand that, and then you read the context of, then you read uh, 1 Corinthians in context. Here's a passage from verse 7, where he's writing to them about marriage. Oftentimes, we remove this passage from its context of Paul thinking the end of the world is about to happen. But read it with that, with that in mind. He says this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in the view of present distresses, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And then we're going to skip to verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. You understand what he's saying? Maybe this passage has always been confusing to you, and you read it now and you're like, oh man. He thinks the world's about to end, and he tells them, Um, whatever you're doing, stop and prepare. Get ready. Because things are about to drastically change. If you're not married, don't get married. If you are married, just settle yourself and prepare. They think the world's about to end. Now, um, a little short time later, things kind of leveled off. The famine ended. And then he writes, a pas- he writes a letter to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And he says, he kind of changed his mind. He kind of realizes he was wrong. Paul didn't expect people 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 2,000 years from, from his point to be reading this book. He would be shocked if he knew that we were still reading this book. Okay, he had no idea that what he was writing was this, this thing that God was going to use to change the world. Um, so he writes to the church in Ephesus, and he totally changes his tune and says, yeah, you should be getting married. You should be having families, and you should be um, doing things. What happened was Paul came to realize that what God was doing was not ending the world. He was ending the way he interacts with people through planning the church. The church was what God was doing. And he was using all of these catastrophes to spread the church. And so when we talk about... As Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. This is the context in which we're working with. At this period in time, they did believe the end was very, very close. And it was, but not the end end. The end of what God was doing there. And he was planting the church. Okay? Um, And so they were confused. We get very confused. Um, God is revealing things. That's kind of how things unfold. Not all at once, a little bit at a time, so our minds make sense. Um, But what I want you to see in this passage is he talks about the end of all things being at hand. um, And then he, so he says, um, it's sort of like he's talking to the preppers, you know, oh, the end of the world's coming, the grid's going to go down, you got to have munitions and guns and canned food, um, and a bunker, of course. Um, And he's writing sort of like to people who probably have this mindset, and he says, hey, get your mind out of that. Focus on the important things. Why don't we not work on self-preservation and we work on the kingdom of God? We work on the gospel. Why don't we not live this life of fear and reacting to everything going on around us? And let's Let's talk about what our focus, our mind should be focused on. And so he says this, therefore be self-controlled. He said, so the end is coming. Therefore be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled 
and sober-minded. Now, he uses some really great words here. Let's look at some of these words. The first word he says is self-controlled. It's the word sophronane. Everyone say sophronane. Very good. It means preserving sanity. It literally means preserving sanity. In other words, don't, don't be crazy. All right, don't be crazy. Don't go nuts. Just relax. Take a breath. Um, sophronane is a... Um, it's a word, it's an idea of a word that it's someone who, is, who keeps away from, from extremes. They're not swinging from one side to the other. They are, they're balanced, they're centered, they're moderate, they're in control. Um, it's someone who sees things in their proper proportion. Um, someone who is able to look through all the, all the screaming and the fear-mongering. It's somebody who, who sees the things that are important and the things which are not. Um, what is the most important thing in this situation? And, and, how do I, and, and what are all the things that people are saying are really important that really aren't really important? Uh, it's someone who is not swept away by the latest enthusiasm maybe that is flooding their Facebook feed. Um, this week it's one thing. Previous week it was something else. Two weeks ago it was something else. And they're trying to outrage you constantly. And the person who is so for inane is the person who sees it and, and, and just... There it is. I'm not affected. They're trying to outrage me and, and my mind is focused on godly things and responding in a godly way and looking at people through God's eyes, not my own. Um, it's, it's someone who is neither fanatic nor are they indifferent. And this is important to understand. A lot of people, they try really hard to not be fanatic, but we never really think about not being indifferent. And so there's the entire spectrum of indifference to fanaticism. One of them always gets very angry about what's going on in the world. And one of them is just very indifferent, and they say, well, it doesn't really matter. Um, there's this place where you're supposed to be as a follower of Jesus that is different than both of these. Um, someone who is sophronane, it's, it's someone who has put God, this is the best way to describe it, someone who has put God in his proper place on the throne, and everything is viewed in the light of God. It is thinking what, if I were to look out of God's eyes, what would I see? If I were to have God's heart, what would I, what would I feel? What does God see when he looks at them? What does God feel when he looks at them? And it's something completely different. It's not indifference in the least, but God is not indifferent to any of us. It's not fanaticism and outrage. God is, um, we're going to talk about this in a bit, but, but God knows you intimately, and, and he knows your pains that led to the things that you're doing. And so he sees things, sees things differently than you do. And so Peter says the first thing we need to remember is the end of all things is near. Um, keep your heads about you. Keep sane. Don't be indifferent to anything that you see. Don't be fanatical about anything you see. Put God on his throne and ponder things in the right light. Now, there's a second word he uses here is sober-minded. This is the same word that we studied back in uh, chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 13. We kind of talked about this ad nauseum. We'll give you a quick refresher. The word is, is nephain. Nephain. There you go. Uh, it, it, it is a word that means preserving your sense of self-restraint and control. Sober-minded, that we use this, the idea sober, sober-minded to, to describe this word when we translate it in English because it's something we link to kind of um, drunkenness, um, being high, altered states of mind. Um, and the, the idea, the reason I, I think the translators use this word is because um, it's outside substances and outside whatever, information, whatever, altering your mindset to where if you had not heard that, you, you would not think the way you do. If you had not received that into your brain, you would not think the way you do. Um, <clears throat> so the person that is nephain is the person who 
is not affected from the outside. They are only affected from the inside. Again, God is in his proper place in their life, and they are able to make decisions from that place, not from out here. There's no amount of information badgering them that can change the way that they act. Um, When they get cut off when they're driving, they smile. Why? Because they're reacting? No, because they were going to smile anyway. And there's nothing anybody can do that could stop what they were going to do anyways. And so it's, it's that idea. It's somebody who isn't affected by what's happening around, that these external circumstances don't control what they're talking about. There's a passage in Hosea where he talks about though there's no cattle in the stalls, there's no grapes on the vines, there's nothing. Even though I'm poor, destitute, and broke, um, I'm rejoicing still in Christ my Savior. He didn't say Christ, but that's what we see it as. Um, I'll rejoice because God is here and he's present. And so God is in his proper place and they see things in the right way. We are neither fanatic nor are we indifferent. Um, I used to work at, where are we? Okay, uh, the end of the road here, the Starbucks that I see a lot of you carrying around because you turn your noses up to our coffee. Um, the Starbucks on the corner down there, I used to be the shift manager down there. I worked the, the, the amazing shift, the four in the morning to one in the afternoon shift. And I got to sit in the drive through window every day, all day, and watch the sun come up. I actually really enjoyed it. There's this sort of repetitiveness about it. I'm like, hi, and watching the sun come up. I just, I have somehow enjoyed this, this job. Um, fully loved it. And um, one day I was taking a 15-minute break, um, and I, I got my refreshed tea, and I walked out. I sat on the deck there, and I'm sipping my tea, and I, I, I hear some horn honking, and I hear some ladies yelling at each other and using words that shouldn't be used that early in the morning. And I look up, and it's actually someone from this church. And uh, it's, it's a girl in line, and she was actually in leadership and, and she, uh, on staff here at the church, and she was screaming. Not here now. Don't worry about it. They'll never hear this. Um, <laughs> and she's screaming profanities at this woman behind her who was screaming them back. And uh, they didn't know I was, I was there, and I'm, I'm just watching, and I'm sipping my tea, and this is sort of a, this is a, a study in human nature. I'm just, huh. And I'm, and I'm paying attention, and, um, and I, I needed to see this in other people because um, I, I know that this person desperately loves people, and I've seen her serve in the most amazing ways, the poorest of the poor, and do wonderful things and say wonderful things, but... What's happening here is this non-sober-mindedness. This, she was not being nefein. She was not being suffering. There was this, there was this uh, sense in which whatever she was focused on at the moment, the horn honk and the yelling, knocked God off, off of his proper place in her life. And I needed to see this from the outside because we are all guilty of this. Several times a day, I guarantee it. And I, I, I see it and I say, I needed to see this because this is probably me at different points in time. Hopefully nobody sees me like this. Hopefully nobody sees me in this light. But I imagine there's times where God just is knocked off of his throne. And this is what it looks like. And, um, and so there's this fanaticism that we swing into when things affect us. They infect our brain. Um, and on the other side... Let's talk about indifference. Um, so me and my wife have, have had driven, we've been a one-car family for about almost a decade, nine and a half years, and I bought a car two weeks ago, and then on four days later, I was hit by a drunk driver, 
Um, <clears throat> and everything's fine. It's not a huge deal. Um, and then uh, um, my night went on. The cops came up. They took all the information. Um, and then um, she went to jail. And then I did a wedding. And then um, I came back and studied for my sermon. And I went to bed. A few days later, I'm reading this passage, and I was struck by my utter indifference for this poor girl. And I just, oh my gosh. I didn't, at first, the cop comes up, he's like, he's like, yeah, she's going to jail. She's high on something. And I was like, oh. And I, I just kept going. And I was struck by my utter indifference of the fact that this is a child of God who made this decision. And this decision, this interaction with my car will last her entire life. And it will change, absolutely, utterly change the direction of her life. And it was almost as if I didn't even care. And I had to spend some time in repentance of just, I had let God come off of the proper place in my life where this didn't even matter to me. This is what he's talking about. Um, there's a quote by Martin Luther King. It's brilliant. Uh, he says, it may, be well, uh, it, it may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and for the violent actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people. How applicable is this today, this year, the year that we have had in this country? We spend time you know, having vitriolic thoughts about those you deem the bad people and there is this indifference to really change things. Both of these things are equally bad and equally need to be repented of, indifference. And, um, so let's, <clears throat> let's move on to the next, uh, next verse he talks about. Um, the second half of verse 8. I'm sorry, starting at verse 8, the first half. He says, Above all, <clears throat> above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Um, and so the word earnestly is very important. It's this word, ectones, ectones. Very good. It means consistently reaching out. So there's, there's, okay, so there's two definitions to this word. There is the textbook definition, and then there's the way it was used in ancient language. Textbook definition, consistently reaching out. This is um, the idea of a mother who is watching her toddler climb something for the first time, and she's, she's I'm there. If you fall, I'm going to catch you. It's consistently, it's not like she's just there waiting for the fall and then she's going to react. It's, nope, what if I'm not fast enough? No, I'm just going to keep reaching out. It's someone who's basically, it's this, always. It's never putting it down. It's just always reaching out to somebody, never quite taking, taking the hand down, always pointing it towards them as if I'm here um, and I'm giving this to you. I'm here to help you always. There's not a point in time where I, where I drop the hand. Um, the second meaning is stretching out as a runner stretches out. The way it was used, um, several times it's used to describe a horse in full sprint. Um, the idea is that there's muscles and they are stretched and they are strong and they're moving. Um, and so the idea sort of that Peter has in his mind is um, you need to always be loving, always reaching out to the people around you. And this doesn't just happen. This is something that you actually work up to um, the idea is, as you purposely love people, you actually begin to love people. As weird as that sounds, as you love people, you begin to love people. Um, the more you practice and exercise that muscle of reaching out to everyone you see in love, um, the more it becomes your state of mind. The more God is on his throne and you're looking through, through his eyes, the more 
you look at things through his eyes. It becomes a natural sort of state. We can also use um, the idea of electricity. There's, there's conductors and there's resistors. Um, resistors are uh, things that receive a flow of energy and stop it. They block it. And then conductors are things that um, allow the energy to flow through. Now, there's, there's a verse here where he says, remember, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What is that about? Um, well, think of it this way. The prayer of, oh man, I'm way, way off my notes. The prayer of the resistor. People who don't have God on the throne in the right place, people who don't have God in the proper place in his life, they pray differently. The prayer of the resistor, of the one who is receiving and just keeping, and there's a lot of Christians today who are this kind of person. We've sort of made this a default setting in Christianity today. We're receiving grace, we're receiving grace, and it stops with us, and there we are. Um, the prayer of the resistor is, is personal. It is, give me, give me, give me, fix this, fix that, adjust my life, and it ends there. The prayers, I mean, what he's saying here is, for the sake of your prayers, he's basically saying, uh, um, you need to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that you can pray as you should pray. That's several ways, several scholars translated the verse, so that you can pray as you ought to. Um, and the prayer of the conductor is completely different. The prayer of the conductor is um, bless other people through me. Allow your will to be done through my life. The prayer of the conductor is break my heart by the, with the things that break your heart. Let me be neither indifferent nor let me be fanatical. Um, and here's the thing about the conductor. The conductor realizes that it is not his power. The conductor doesn't make any power on his own. He doesn't have the ability to cause power to flow. He is only receiving from the power source and letting it flow through. So he's not even giving his own power. And this is an important thing to realize. You do not have the ability to fully look at people and love people the way you should. And so instead, we look at God and we think about how God looks at other people and we look at them that way. I mean, look at the second half of this. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, arms outstretched, arms fully outstretched, exercising this muscle so we can learn to keep them out longer. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Since love covers... A multitude of sins. Um, what does this mean? How do we talk about this? Well, have you ever noticed that two people can do completely the, the same action, but their relation to you depends on your reaction to their actions? And here's what I mean. Um, you're watching a bunch of children, and you brought your children to like a play date, and all the kids are hitting each other, and you have less patience for the other kids than yours, because you know yours heart, and you know they're just doing it because another kid hit them first, and they're just doing it. It's, it's kind of, so, come here, come here. I know you didn't mean to, but you did, and the other kid are like, stop hitting my kid, <laughs> and, and so it's the relationship that you have. It's the way you look at this person that actually changes your reaction to them. Um, you're watching TV, and you read about an armed bank robbery, and they show the guy's face and before they show his face, you think, what a low-life piece of scum. Um, I hope they find him and lock him up 
forever. He needs to be off the street. What a terrible person. Just lock him up and throw away the key. And then they show the picture, and it's your brother. And suddenly, your love for them covers this massive sin, and you say, your reaction is no longer disgust. It's, oh, no. It's sadness. It's pity. A lot of you don't realize what intimacy does. Um, in my premarriage counseling classes, I teach about intimacy, and I talk about how love and passion for other people comes from intimacy, which that's not a sexual thing as the media makes it. Intimacy is, is knowing somebody. It's knowing things about them, knowing their deepest things. Um, your brother that you saw on TV robbing the bank is the same brother that you grew up with, that you played with as a kid, that you rode bikes with. Um, he one time maybe helped you climb over a fence. Maybe he caught you when you fell off of something. You know him. You know he's good. You know his heart. You love him. And what he did was wrong, but that's not him. Intimacy does this. Intimacy is what can cure racism. It can fix marriages. It, uh, it helps you love people that you before thought unlovable. It's because you know them. And this is why God loves you so much. Because he knows everything about you. He was there when you were a child and you were playing. He was there at your birth. He was there when you found your, the love of your life. He was there when that love ended he was there in the darkest moment of your life when you did the worst thing you've ever done in your life. He was there, and he knows. And you might think, you might be here and think, and because God knows, that's why God could never love me. And I want you to know it's the opposite. Because God knows, he loves you. Because he is so intimately entangled in your every moment of your life, because he is there he desperately loves you, and when you are at your darkest hour, his reaction is not lock them up and throw them in the lake of fire. It's, oh, my heart breaks. What can I do to intervene? What can I do to fix it? Love covers a multitude of sins. God knows you. The actions in the love of Christ cover you. Um, when things get difficult, when it seems like the end is coming. Keep Christ in his proper place in your life. Look at people the way he does. He desperately knows and desperately loves, desperately hurts for them. And next time the outside world is attempting to change your mind about things and they're attempting to make you angry to cause outrage and fanaticism or they're just trying to spark indifference in your life, do not let that happen. Keep God on his throne. You look at every situation the way God does. If you are here today and you think that God doesn't love you because of things that you've done, I would argue the exact opposite. I would argue that God loves you because he knows you, because he created you, because he was there. And so as we go to communion today, I want us to kind of think about um, the ways that we have been either fanatical or indifferent. And we need to spend some time in collective repentance to these things. They have affected how we interact with the world. They have affected how the world looks at us. And rightfully so. And so our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and prepare. Um, and... As we take communion today, I want to spend some time really thinking about this and, and talk to the Lord about the ways that you have failed in, in these ways. 
and confess them, make them right. If you need to confess to a brother or sister in Christ, we are all the priesthood. We can all hear confessions and we can all look at each other and say, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus because of what he has done. Uh, communion is a very special thing. It's, it's a time when we remember what Jesus did for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to take communion with us. I would love that. Um, if you would like to become a follower of Jesus, I want you to take communion with us. If you need prayer, um, I will stick around and pray with you. Um, our elders are here, some of them, and they will pray with you. Right out these doors on the left, there is a prayer room, um, and someone will meet you there to pray with you. But uh, let's take some time in silence and prayer and uh, talking to Jesus, shall we? Father, we love you. Thank you for all of the ways that you um, have reached out to us and, and all of the ways that you know us and all the moments of our life that you were there and you were just in the background even if we didn't acknowledge your presence. <clears throat> you were there and you were real. Help that to, un- help that to in- uh, interact with our view of you and to realize that the love you have for us is greater than any love that we will ever have for anyone else because it is so deeply seated in intimacy. Cover our sins. Forgive us our sins. Help us to forgive each other when we are sinned against. Help us to look at other people the way that you do and help us to keep you in your rightful place in our minds. We love you. In your name, amen.